Hey folks, this is Anatoly and you're listening to the Solana Podcast. And today I have with me um, a guest you probably have heard of. It's Sergey Nazarov from Chainlink. Um, really excited to, to have you here on the show. Great. Thank you, Anatoly. Thrilled, uh, thrilled to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you were like one of the first person, one of the first people I met in the space and like kind of have always run into you on like every conference. Um, and I'm, it, it's awesome to just have, you know, have some time to talk to you and like kind of hear your story. Cause I think, I think unless you've been living under a rock and in crypto, I'm sure you, some, you have heard of Chainlink. Like you guys are like one of the, the top most premier projects. Yeah, thank you. It's it's always been a pleasure chatting with you. And you know, when I when I saw experienced people like you with with a world background in systems design and production engineering, doing a lot of a lot of things in our industry, I was ex- I'm always excited by that. I'm always excited to see like experienced people come into our industry and try to build systems and and build applications, whether it's a DeFi application or blockchain. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think our conversations have always really really been on the level. So I'm 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 thrilled we can chat here as well. So um, you're like super early in the space, at least compared mm-hmm. to me. And I'd love to hear your story of how, how you even got into crypto. Sure, sure. So it, 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 it was kind of a gradual thing, right? So I, I started mining around 2011. And that's all you could really do back then. I got into it partly from an interest in digital currencies and partly from the gaming community. Because back then, a lot of the people that were actually mining were GPU holders and owners and they could actually mine a certain amount of Bitcoin because they had some, or Litecoin or whatever they were mining um, by, by the use of just GPUs. And so that, plus my interest in digital currencies, generally speaking, got me in, involved in this space. And so I did that for a few years. Um, I actually did mining mainly on cloud infrastructure instead of, instead of having my own miners because I understood they would depreciate in value because of the hash power and, and, and the curves there and all that stuff. Um, Around 2013 and 14, you started to see the appearance of something called app coins. And basically the fundamental premise then that I actually questioned for some amount of time was the the idea that you could use blockchains for transactions and data other than payment, right? So back in 2013, 14, it was completely unclear to people that you could use a blockchain for anything other than a payment system and even anything other than like the Bitcoin payment system and so on. And, and back then, everybody's the microtransactions in Bitcoin and like, you know, buy your coffee in Bitcoin, buy your pay your rent in Bitcoin. You know, that was the whole that was the whole story back <laughs> yeah. then. Um, and so there there was this doubt that I had. And, and to basically test out those doubts, I tend I tend to just kind of go out and try to do things and try to prove things about the world through empirical kind of evidence. Right. That's kind of what I uh, the approach I tend to have, because there's just so much information and noise and different interests and different different things. And, and, and once you can prove something, then you, then you know it, right? And I think early on, we built um, something called CryptoMail. So CryptoMail was, was, as far as I could tell, the first blockchain-based messaging system where the plain text of a message was never actually on our server. It, it, it was encrypted client-side, put in a blockchain, and then the ciphertext was read by another client. So... That the fact that we could do secure messaging in a way that didn't have message text touch our server, our backend server, was very impressive to me because I actually knew something about the secure messaging space and I knew that that was a problem people couldn't solve. Like no matter how many times they encrypted something or did something else or whatever they did with uh, Iceland, they put some server there or God knows what they did, right? They couldn't, they couldn't eliminate the problem of, I have a centralized server somewhere, it has message text, right? And amazingly enough, in a relatively short time, we were able to build a system that used blockchains for this other transaction type, which was essentially messaging. And you know, messaging is, 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 a, is, a, is a worrying space to be in because there's a lot of um, strange messages that some people want to send. So if you get into private messaging, you really have to make a decision to, to, to give your life to private messaging because it's a very... Um, were you already like an entrepreneur or were you working somewhere and doing this for fun? Oh, no, no. I was, I was yeah, I, I ran a number of things before this and even at the time. So this, this, was, this was all kind of happening in parallel to a number of, of ventures that I was, I was basically pursuing. How, how did you like, like what, what made you like actually like go out on your own? That, 
that's like a pretty tough decision to make for like a smart person in computer science. <laughs> I, I had the chance to know a number of people that were running enterprises, were running startups, and were having a moderate level of success, but they were doing things that I didn't know like why they were doing it that way. And they couldn't explain it to me. And I was sitting there and I was looking at that, like, you know, if I was in your position, I'd do it this way. And I was looking at that and I was like, I was, I was just noticing that I was right. Like, you know, they were doing it one way and I was like, maybe you should do it this way. And then I was right a few months later. Right. And so that kind of just gave me an inclination that this, this thing with running a tech firm, I mean, it's obviously very, very tough. Um, I basically couldn't explain to myself why I wouldn't succeed. And, and, and then there were these other things like you should do it while you're younger. That's a good thing to do because later it'll be tougher. Uh, there was some stuff from, from this Jeff Bezos guy about the Amazon, about his um, regret minimization framework. Like there was just, there, there was like a pattern of, I'm pretty sure I can, I can do this relatively well if I, if I do it long enough and I try hard enough. Um, you can always get a job you know, there's no reason you can't get a job if, if you, if, if you're hardworking and smart. So I, I pretty much knew that I could always do that. And realistically, it just, it just seemed more, more interesting. It seemed like, you know, if I get something right here, I can build a system and the system can be useful to people in ways that being a part of a larger organization can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you you were already kind of like doing stuff like you were already an entrepreneur and you were started kind of getting into crypto yeah it happened it happened gradually right so i i, I basically cuz cuz initially it didn't it didn't look like much right it was like these weird mining pools you had some software called cg miner you had you had these it 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 wasn't doing much right it 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 wasn't accepted anywhere it wasn't used for anything i remember when i would talk to people about bitcoin or blockchains they would immediately talk to me about dark markets because like that's what was in the news right and i, I literally went to like through like 2 years of talking to pretty smart people and they, the first their first association of this industry was with dark markets right and i think for that type of thing what what you need is you need um like you need a reason to to have conviction about something and 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 that's that's how i actually think a lot of these 10 year overnight successes happen is it's it's not necessarily because the person the person you know it looks like an overnight success because people see it at the end but as i as you actually look at the history of a lot of open source projects and a lot of other systems it's people that just had a conviction about a certain set of design principles, about a certain set of assumptions about how the world was going to evolve. And, and then they had the resources and they had the will to, to work through what the problems were to, to, to be right about that when the world reflected their beliefs about how the world should work, right? And so that, I think, is, is really dependent on conviction. And I, I see a number of people come into our industry, come out of our industry, and I've I've been in the industry now for in the blockchain industry now for about ten years, building smart contracts for about seven of those, and well, a little bit less than ten years. But the the, the point is that I I don't I don't think that a lot of this stuff or certain parts of this are going to happen as quickly as people think. There are parts there are parts that are going to happen faster than people think. And there are parts that are going to happen slower. And I, I think the thing that that's that's important for people in this industry is that they're psychologically able to deal with with that reality. And if they're unable to deal with that reality and they have some expectation that keeps getting deflated, partly because you know I don't you know you know exactly what their reasons are for for doing what they're doing, that that's going to be a tough road. But if if they can say to themselves, hey, you know, I'm fine with this taking X number of years for this thing to happen. I know it's going to happen in that timeline. I have the resources to do that. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do for the next few years of my life, you know, five years, 10 years, however many years. Um, I actually find that it, it lets people stop worrying about, you know, whatever questions they have about whether this is the right thing to be working on or, or, or whether it's going to happen or not. And it just provides a certain focus. Yeah. And I, I, 
I think that's actually one of the things that has really helped us uh, succeed is an ability to focus as a team and um, as a project and as an open source kind of solution. And, and, and that focus from a good, from a good focus, you can then expand. Whereas if you don't have a good focus, it's, it's very difficult to, to really get anywhere. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with you. You kind of have to, you either have to be, you know, like, you know, in that valley where you're too, too not smart enough to understand that it's going to take 10 years and keep doing it <laughs> or smart yeah. enough to understand that it, it's going to take 10 years and, and kind of plan for the long haul and, and just kind of keep working at it. Um, but j- j- just to be clear, I'm, 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 I'm a super optimistic guy, but I, yeah. I, I, at the same time see that for five years in a row, I'm like, this is the year, this is the year. Right. And and it's it's gonna happen, right? It's all gonna happen, and it's gonna happen. And it, guess what, Anatoly? It's November, but it's gonna happen this year still. You'll see. But and at at the same time, you just you just have to be comfortable with um, if it's not gonna happen this year, it's gonna happen after a few years. That this is a worthwhile body of work. This is a worthwhile thing to spend your time on. Um, and I th- I think I think that's a decision that once people they make once people make that decision. It, it allows them to commit themselves more fully. I've always found that like in those moments where I have been successful, I kind of have seen, you know, the start of the maze and the end of the maze and maybe not all the steps, but I can kind of like, I, I can, I, yeah. I know the first five steps. Like I have the incremental kind of like, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And that's what kind of starts me down a, a good path. Like having, being able to, on your own without a large team, but like actually on your own to, to push something forward um, in a relatively short amount of time was, was always an important factor to, to getting any big project successful in as an entrepreneur and even in a big company trying to push a major change through, you know, like it, it takes similar amount of kind of like blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that the stuff that we do actually has more dimensions of complexity because it's an open source project with a community and and a, and, a, and, a, and a user base and and a growing group of people that are working on it together with us. So it's I think it's actually the right and the better model because it's more equitable and it it avoids monopoly rent, which is essentially what you know centralized and purely for profit systems. Basically, you know, you it's very it's very easy to see if you really look at open source, why people prefer it, if it's good enough, if it's well-made enough, because nobody wants to to go down a technical path where they're going to have monopoly rent extracted from them. Right. But yeah, I think, I think it's not, it's not the easiest path. Right. So it's, it's, it's just, I, I, th- I think the, the open source project path even has even more complexity. And so the, the nuances there are, are people's commitment. And if they have the resources to see that path through and then also if they're, if they're going down the right path. And I think if, if you have all three of those pieces, then you can make a really long lasting resource, global, globally useful resource that can, can do something like Linux, can do something that really redefines how things actually work. And I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of other places or industries or, or opportunities for pe- where people can spend their time that can have the type of longevity that a system like Linux or a protocol like HTTP or like one of these other things can have. So if you're going to, you know, spend your limited time um, on this earth doing something, you, you, you might as well, you know, put it into something that can have a longevity to it that can come to define how, how things work in a good way. That that's at least, at least that's my viewpoint, but it's, once again, it's another one of those things where it's like, do you care about that? Is that, is that interesting to you? And, and if that is a dimension that's interesting to you, then cool, you know, open source, open source software that could come to be the way the world works might be, might be more attractive and the right thing. Um, But you, you have to, you have to be interested in that, right? If you're interested in that, it gives you a lot of power in terms of your will and your conviction. If you're not interested in that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're act- burn out. well, I don't know about that, but you're, you're going to, 
you're going to get into a situation that's more difficult than even making some generic like SaaS software, right? Because in certain ways, making open source is even sometimes more difficult than that. But yeah, so that's, I, I think that's what you said before with the maze, right? You need, you need to know what the beginning and the end of the maze looks like. And if you know that and, and you have enough conviction, you can, you can figure out all the steps in between. So I think that's actually a very good analogy. Yeah. It's, it's often like a, you know, like a, I think like one of the key parts is you kind of like expect things to go wrong and just be okay with knowing that you can deal with them. You know, there's a lot of, like a lot of stuff goes wrong. It's just a matter of whether it's going to, you know, be a, an existential threat or just a speed bump. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's difficult to figure, figure some of these, um, some of these things out. I think that's another place where focus really helps, right? When, when, you, when you don't have a certain amount of focus, there's so many different things you could be doing. There's so many different opportunities. That the way we approach this actually is we, we have this kind of framework and network of oracles, and then there's just prioritized categories of data and useful capabilities that we make available. And we have a prioritized list like price data, then randomness, then weather data for insurance. And I think having a set of priorities like this is actually very important. Because w once you have those set of priorities, you can really focus a group of people around them. Whereas if you don't have a set of priorities or a community or even a community of people around them, whereas if you don't have a set of priorities, then I think a lot of people's efforts can get diffused across a lot of different things. And then you could even have pl places where people are pulling in different directions. And it's, it's much more powerful when people are all pulling in one direction or, or like, or two directions that are right next to each other. Yep. And so I, th I, th I think focus probably helps with that because there's just, there's just situations where people come, like, for example, we're not going to make DeFi products. We're not going to make a blockchain, right? People come and say, we well, should make DeFi products. Maybe you want to make a block. Like, no, we don't want to do that. Thank you. It's a great opportunity, but, you know, we're very focused on this. We, we know what we're doing with this. And, um, and yeah, so that's, 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 I, th I think that's, that's why focus um, is a, is a powerful thing. Yeah. I, I can agree more with you. I think in, in this, this is like totally something that I think every startup when it gets after like, you know, gets through the first phase sees just too many opportunities and kind of like um, too many options and no pre-product market fit, right? Like it is something that can really kill a startup. Like if you try to cover everything, you effectively lose focus on what's important to, you know, your customer, even getting to know your customer and, or your user base or your community. Um, for us, it's been like, I think similar to you guys, you kind of have the single mission of building oracles. We are also a single mission of building the fastest possible chain, <laughs> which is kind of like, you know, when you have to make a bajillion technical decisions, you can like say, is this thing make the, make the chain faster Then yes, <laughs> then pick that one, right? Pick that option. And, and don't worry about like all of these subjective side effects, right? Like, do we need to support this language or this other one, like this compiler or virtual machine or et cetera? Like there's like too many options in, in tech. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like, like we said, it's, it's always useful to have focus. How did you, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how, how did you um, pick, like, I, I guess after you found that you had conviction that there's something useful that you can do with, with blockchain outside of payments, was that what started you on, like, building uh, Chainlink? Yeah, so basically what happened is that after after CryptoMail, which we decided not to pursue because that's, you know, secure messaging, if you're going to win in that space, that's a very serious place. That's a very, very serious world to get involved in. Um, we then, I, I, I then basically sat down and I, and I really gave it some thought as to what are the most valuable transactions that can get this tamper-proof property that blockchains give transactions and contracts. And... I then um, then we went to decentralized exchange and we went to to something called secure asset exchange and and, and using blockchains for um, moving around essentially ownership value right. But then relatively quickly after that, I I I basically saw the expansiveness of this as 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 much more generalized. So I I basically just 
didn't I, I, I basically saw that, that that the blockchain industry tends to come in myopic waves. So there tends to be a very serious focus on one category of things, right? It's like um, something is something is really hot in, in the blockchain industry as a new innovation, right? And it's like, here's this wave, here's that wave, here's here's another wave. Like for a time it was messaging, for a time it was something with tokens, you know, something like that. Yeah. And when I when I think about it, I don't really understand, and still nobody even at the highest levels of some of these enterprise systems, nobody's been able to explain to me why a more reliable blockchain-based agreement wouldn't be better than whatever the current world centralized systems do. Like if, if, you, just, if you just sit down with the most competent CTOs, CIOs, architects of, of, the, of the world systems, and you ask them like, hey, look, if I could give you these properties of your system today and I could give you the properties of extreme reliability, tamper-proofness, and transparency with counterparties without all of you having to keep reconciled records across each other, right? So you have guarantees that the contracts are going to execute, you have transparency, and you have security built in with private keys. Basically, everybody wants that for every type of contract that you can think of. Ad networks want it. Trade finance wants it. Derivatives want it. Global global real estate um, and title ownership industries want it. The insurance industry wants it. All of these industries, they all they all function on the back end through essentially digitized agreements, digital agreements. And in every single in every single case, they have very large fraud problems, settlement uh, delay problems, um, transparency issues with counterparties. And so I, I think what it what it came down to was you really want a system that solves these problems across all these different contract types. And and basically what happened was we had a full stack solution in the in the form of smartcontract.com where you could you actually had a front end where you could build the contract and you had a back end where you could feed in data into it and then you had triggers that went onto a blockchain, right? And and basically, what what happened was um, that's cool. Does that does that still run? Is, I mean, yeah, that's accessible in a few places. That that it, it it is a cool thing. But we basically realized that building an interface in the full stack was a lot, and that's that's one of those lessons about you really yeah. need focus, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so what we basically saw was there were a few teams that started taking parts of the stack, right? Like there was a team or two that were t- trying to take the decentralized storage part of the stack. And then there were teams like Ethereum that were trying to take the smart contract platform kind of state change part of the stack. And from the very beginning, we were very focused not on token related contracts. Like some of our first contracts were to pay out pay out for SEO because we could prove that an SEO event happened. We could prove that a site changed in ranking. And that, uh, we knew there was a lot of fraud in that industry and that people wanted guarantees that if they raised the ranking of a website, they would get automatically paid. You know, there was stuff for international shipping. There were a number of other of other use cases. And I think what what we realized was that every use case that we were that we were building, whether it was for a self service you know interface or whether it was for a bank or an insurance company. The second they got to a point where they actually had to do something with more useful beyond moving tokens, right? And tokens is useful, but that's a piece of the puzzle, right? Basically, about 80, 90% of the contracts out there that we that we would work work on or work with in terms of real enterprises, they all had this huge problem of needing to integrate with 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 two categories of things. First of all, they needed to integrate with their existing systems. So they actually needed their existing backend to do things on a blockchain and to know what was happening on a blockchain. And that's that's a large opportunity. And and this, this, the second thing is the ability to feed data into contracts and to trigger contracts based on data. So it's actually kind of the same problem when you look at it. It's a problem of how do I connect my contract to things outside of a blockchain, whether those are commands from an ERP system or their commands in the form of data sources saying the market price has changed, or their commands in the form of weather data, or their commands in the form of, you know, the location of some goods somewhere. At the end of the day, those are inputs and outputs, they're events. 
And so what, what you really need is you need a platform that can provide events, that can provide inputs, and actually also generate outputs into existing backend systems, into payment systems, into other blockchains, um, in, into all kinds of places from, from a smart contract. And, and once you're able to do that, um, the things that people can do with smart contracts massively expand. But, but the problem is that building that security is not easy. And, and, and the thing you don't want is you don't want an industry or, or, or a space where you have development teams of three to five people that should be focused on building a use case, an application, building infrastructure. Like that's really how our, how our industry has moved slowly over time. And it's actually when Ethereum or, or some set of oracles like Chainlink appear that allow people to quickly build things without building the security themselves that you seriously see an uptick in what people build. Because all of a sudden you have one person, three person, five person teams building world-class systems with these tamper-proof properties because they don't need to build infrastructure. They're able to use infrastructure. And, and that's what the global kind of developer ethos is, right? It's not, I'm gonna build six pieces of infrastructure and my use case. It's, I have a bunch of APIs, I have a bunch of libraries, I have a bunch of building blocks. I'm really good at connecting them in, in the right way. And by the way, I've chosen the right use case. And so I have Uber, right? I have a GPS API to know where the user is. I have an SMS API to tell the user something. And I have Stripe to pay the, um, you know, the, the, the driver. And so I, I think that what, what, we're, what we're seeing now is better and better blockchain systems that enable scalability, enable speed, and at the same time, more building blocks from systems like ours, providing data, providing randomness inputs, providing connection to, to all kinds of systems. And the closer we get the blockchain industry to the type of development environment where people can quickly iterate without building security or solving infrastructure problems, the more quickly these one to five person teams are going to build world-class groundbreaking use cases and our industry is going to be redefined by those use cases. But you, you need that type of development environment in order for that to happen. Because like, you know, like with Thomas Edison, right? I found a thousand ways that don't work. That's how a lot of great killer use cases happen. It's because there's an environment where, I don't know, 20 teams can all fail 50 times each. Yep. And, and one of them comes out making an Uber. Are you? Do you think we're at a point where there's enough business models out there that involve crypto to where that's possible? I feel like part of the reason why that hasn't happened yet is that like there's very few crypto specific kind of like things you could do where a team can make money, like can without an ICO, without, without selling a token. <laughs> I, I think I think that might have that I think that was true maybe two years ago, but I, I think now you do have a pattern of success, and you actually see a number of top VCs putting money into DeFi teams because the DeFi team is able to go from zero value secured to a few hundred million dollars in value secured, and that's in a market of ten to fifteen billion in possible value to go into their application. Now. I, th I think there's actually two big, big, really important things. The first one is that if you make a good application in the DeFi landscape right now, you will get hundreds of millions of dollars in value locked. And that will allow you to make a sustainable enterprise that, you know, people give you money, VCs invest in that. You, you, you can have a pattern of success. The fascinating thing about patterns of success is that they take on a life of their own and people then begin to do them, right? So I, I think we've arrived at a place where separate from token sales, people can build an application, a, a financial product, put it out into the crypto community and the crypto community of now over 400 billion in total value locked in that, build, in that crypto format. You can already have teams that are really successful just taking that small 10 to 15 billion chunk of that 400 billion but the fascinating thing, I think the thing that's really going to kick things into high gear is going to be when more of that 400 billion makes its way into the DeFi landscape. 
and that basically means that if you're dealing with 10 to 15 billion now, I can easily see doubling, tripling, quadrupling 10x, 20x market size, which means the successful apps in that universe go from securing hundreds of millions to billions. And, and those are the types of numbers that attract even more um, support, right? Yeah. So I think that you already have a pattern of success. You have a lot of value in the crypto format that's going to flow into DeFi to accelerate that pattern of success. And then the other fascinating thing, and this is really you know how I think some things can go mainstream, is that if you don't have interest rates in the traditional world, beyond like 0.1% or something, why wouldn't Robinhood or banks, digital banks, smaller banks, um, or whoever generate a path to give their user base the two to 8% in annual yield that people can get in DeFi today? Like at, at a certain point, the, the rails, the pathway between the trillions of dollars in yield-seeking value and the 2%, the 2 to 4 to 8% annual yield that exists in DeFi, at some point, the pathway, the pathway between those two things is going to get polished enough that people who build protocols that properly secure that type of proposition to the average user. And, and by the way, average users don't care where their yield comes from. They, they don't know where their yield comes from. In, in the vast majority of cases, they just want yield and they want low risk, right? So if the global financial system suddenly has more risk and less yield and the DeFi landscape has less risk and more yield, the global financial markets don't care. They don't care at all. They don't, they, they, they don't, they don't even pretend to care. They, they just care about counterparty risk, yield, and uh, ability to comply with regulation. And so I think that the future looks really bright in that long case. In the medium term, you have a ton of money that's going to go from the 400 billion into that smaller DeFi market that's only 10 to 15 billion. And you already see this happening with wrapped Bitcoin and a number of other things. And then even in the near term, even now, if you launch something in the DeFi market, you have a good chance of being successful. You have a good chance of getting a few hundred million into your protocol basically overnight or in a few weeks. So that pattern of success is is there and and the fascinating thing is it's not there from generating your own token necessarily in some cases it is but in a lot of cases it isn't a lot of these things you know got all this value locked in them before they generate their own token and i think that that's the big difference right is that you have a pattern of success not necessarily from generating a token but from making a financial product that uses these systems, you know, the combination of essentially smart contracts and oracles combined. And, and that's, that's the thing that I think we've to a degree enabled. And what part of the reason people like us is that we've abstracted away the security kind of problems and infrastructure creation issues that a smaller development team of anywhere from, you know, three to 10 people doesn't need to deal with, but now they can make these financial products because they have security at the smart contract level and at the data level and at the data source level. And I, I think, I, I, go ahead. I, I think like you're, you're absolutely right. Like I think a year ago or like, you know, like there were a bunch of teams that were still building their own oracles and because the business opportunity wasn't there, but now that like the business opportunity is like, or like red iron hot. Like if you actually waste time writing your own Oracle, <laughs> you're going to lose like market share. And, and that is like, that, that's what makes, I think a difference for like, um, for teams that actually like kind of have a bullseye, like they have focus, right? Like, so um, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think this is 
a, a major difference now versus like one or two years ago, even one year, like Maker built their own really crappy version of an Oracle. <laughs> I, I think I think that the other thing that I noticed is it's not just even getting to the market. I see the people that are able to rely on our oracles and our ability to launch to, to launch and for them to launch new oracle networks, such to accelerating their improvement. So it's 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 not even just hey I'm going to launch something. Yes, it's very important for you to launch something, and it's very important for you to do that securely so the thing doesn't fall over. And, and that it operates in a way that secures value properly. Those are very important considerations. And both smart contracts or smart contract audits and your Oracle mechanism should figure into both of those. Both of those should figure into this very prominently, right? But then after you do that, if you're building your own Oracle, every time you want to add a new data source, every time you wanna you wanna make a new market, every time you want to new add a new type of collateral, you're gonna be getting resources sucked out of you. Those resources, if you actually build a successful user application, you're going to want to desperately put them towards winning or, or building a better and better user experience, building a better and better set of markets, building a better and better product, basically. And by the way, this is how all the best web firms that win, win, is, is they don't spend all of their time building infrastructure they, they, they basically come into an environment where they can compose well-made infrastructure really efficiently in the right configuration. And that right configuration might not be super clear initially. Like you, for example, could start making a financial product for one market that requires one data source, but you could quickly learn that you actually need two more markets or you, need a complete, or you actually wanna be in a completely different market that needs a completely different data source. And the speed at which you can make those changes as, um, as a development team, and, and also once you do hit upon something, launch additional markets for commodities or, or other cryptos or whatever, that speed of being able to launch more and more markets is, um, is kind of a critical thing. Because once, once you hit on a solution, you're going to want to quickly launch a lot of the right markets. And the other, the other thing I think that people don't, um, th there's another nuance to this really that I think people don't fully understand the depth of the Oracle problem and the depth of what it means to connect centralized data sources and systems that aren't as reliable as blockchains to blockchains and to make those systems meet the reliability guarantees of a smart contract. And they, they think it's a, they think it's it's as simple as simply connecting the systems, and what it's what it's really about is connecting the systems in a way that maintains security and reliability and transparency guarantees to users. So you 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 want to expand what a contract does, but you at the same time want to maintain the security guarantees, tamper-proofness guarantees, and transparency guarantees of a smart contract. And so you're expanding your surface area and at the same time, therefore needing to secure it more. And, and that's really what a, what a decentralized Oracle mechanism and a well-made Oracle mechanism does is it is enables you to quickly expand what a smart contract does, but it maintains your security and reliability and transparency in, in ways that meet the high standards of a smart contract. And, and that's the actual challenging thing. It's not just saying, hey, you know, I'm going to trigger something with some data. It's can you trigger a billion dollars with this data because it's properly verified and it's properly secured and you can actually prove to your users just like you can prove to them that a smart contract is going to convert its state once something happens. You can prove that this mechanism will represent the external world to your contract in, in a way that's both accurate and deterministic and predictable and reliable and secure. Do you think that um, that is kind of like a, a goal that is like kind of like always on the horizon? Like, like how achievable is that like for, a, you know, a billion dollars or $10 billion? Like, are, are we there already like in terms of tech or is it still like? So I, I think I think it's completely achievable on a use case by use case basis. And I think I think it, what it comes down to is people being able to properly manage risk. 
and they need a system to manage the different dimensions of risk, right? So if, if you have an environment like crypto prices, where you have a lot of sources of data, and you have a system like Chainlink with a lot of independent node operators, and you have a reputation system that proves that those node operators are reliable, and you have the right incentives, and, and, and so you, you have decentralization at the level of the data, and you have decentralization at the level of the Oracle mechanism. In that, in that environment, you can generate uh, a lot of risk mitigation. And what our, what our system is meant to do is to both generate that risk mitigation and prove that it's been generated. Because in these systems, you want to prove to people that they're in a certain state. You want to prove to them that they're going to function a certain way. You don't want to just generate the system and tell people, don't worry about it. You want to generate a system that can then prove that security, just like block explorers can prove to you that something is happening with a Bitcoin or a smart contract is in a certain state or will be in a certain state if something else happens, right? So I think there, there are cases where that is doable today, absolutely. I think there are other cases where right now we're in the middle stages and then other cases we're in the exploratory stages. So there are cases for insurance where you have parametric insurance and you have weather data or you have IoT data about things like solar panels. And in those cases, what you, what you fundamentally need to do is you need to think about all the risk mitigation that you want to deal with in relation to external systems, right? That's, that's really the question. So do I have enough weather data sources to properly settle parametric weather insurance in a decentralized, tamper-proof, highly reliable way? Yeah, you do. You, you do have enough. And, and can you configure them to do that at large amounts of value, eliminating the claims process and eliminating the need for local legal frameworks that don't function in many parts of the world? And can you, as a result, give people insurance in places where they could never have insurance before for things like crop uh, insurance and drought? Yes, you can. Um, if you wanted to insure a field of solar panels, well, the question would be, is one solar panel feeding you the data or does every fifth solar panel have a sensor? And, and, and what can you prove about this field of solar panels? And, and what kind of signing do the IoT devices do? And you know, there'll be solar panel fields that you can prove things about and there'll be solar panel fields that you can't. And, and then the dynamic that takes hold, in my opinion, um, and I'm pretty, sh pretty, pretty sure about this, this dynamic, is that data that becomes valuable in its ability to trigger contracts attains a new value and therefore comes into existence. So I, I already see insurance companies working together with IoT companies to go to their highest value enterprise clients and the insurance company pays for the IoT company to put sensors into the industrial infrastructure of their policyholder. And the reason they do that is because the insurance company sees value in that data. And, and in many cases, they even start to make it conditions of their policy to do that. And so what you see there is you see a dynamic where data didn't exist, but people want to build contracts and contractual systems in a way that requires data. And so the economics of generating that data change in a way that encourages and generates that data. And I, I think that's the world we're going towards. I think the world we're going towards is that once you have more and more systems that can be triggered by data and can be triggered in a highly efficient, deterministic, tamper-proof, reliable way, the way smart contracts provide, the value for data that can trigger things in those systems will increase because the triggering of that type of contractual relationship becomes more valuable. It becomes because of the efficiency you gain, right? So if you gain a week of efficiency or a million dollars in efficiency, then you have a million dollar budget to generate that efficiency. And that means that you have a million dollar budget to spend on blockchains and oracles and all the piece and the data and I, I think this is this is where everything's going to go. Is that if smart contracts are the method by which people do digital agreement, which is what the world, the whole world, the global economy, all of it runs on, right? All of it runs on digital agreements. If the better format for that is smart contracts, 
And if that format is more efficient because it's automated, and if it requires data to be automated, and if it requires that data to be in a certain state or in a, at a certain level of assurance to be automated, then, um, then guess what? There's a huge budget for that. And I think that even if there isn't data right now in certain verticals, the fact that people want smart contracts to power their relationships with enterprises, between enterprises, that demand will bring that data into existence. How much um, education is there left to do at the kind of like outside of crypto for folks to actually understand that there are smart contracts? that there are things that will automatically execute. Like, I think that that is like kind of a, a hard thing for me to explain to engineers outside of crypto. Um, I, th I think it'll happen. I think it'll happen one of two ways. Um, there's the slow case and there's the fast case. So in, in the slow case, I think what happens is people gradually grow into the crypto environment and they and and they naturally learn about smart contracts and the counterparty risk guarantees and the transparency and the reliability of smart contracts, right? So there's this slow case where more and more people adopt this method of generating agreement of generating guarantees to their users, right? For example, we have insure tech companies that are now going to be going out more and more and saying, I have blockchain guarantees. People are going to ask them, what does that mean? They're going to say, it means I have to pay. I, I don't have to pay you. I, I will pay you because the system makes it happen, right? And, and so th that's, that's the slow case where the real value um, of fraud protection and all this type of stuff gets presented to users in the higher value use cases. The, and, th and that's going to grow. That's going to grow awareness because of the value of those capabilities. Not, not because people want to know about automated this, but because it's, it's, it's vertically useful to prevent click fraud, or it's vertically useful to make better insurance products, or it's vertically useful to make a better derivatives product for some derivatives trader somewhere. And so th th there's going to be this like vertically focused levels of education at the highest pain point areas, right? So that's, that's going to happen gradually. The, the second adoption kind of cycle and, and the fast case is if people understand their actual relationship with, with the world's enterprises, institutions, global financial uh, players, I think people ignore their actual relationship with their insurance company, with a bank, with the global financial system until it creates a problem, basically. There's basically like these big boom and bust cycles. And during the boom cycle, everybody is happy to just sit there and, and, and live their life and not worry about counterparty risk and not worry about transparency and not worry about the solvency of whoever, right? And not worry about what it means to have an insurance agreement and, and what the solvency of the underlying insurance company is or how are they proving that to you or what guarantees that you do you have that if there's a, an issue in the financial markets, you can actually withdraw your assets or that you can actually get your insurance policy paid out, right? And, and all of these questions are kind of ignored, right? Because basically, because there aren't a lot of failure events, right? It's like a, the system is working. I haven't seen a failure event for a while. Nothing to worry, nothing to see here, right? But then there's bust cycles, right? And in the bust cycles, like in 2008, you basically, it basically happens all at once because all these systems are hyper-connected. The insurance companies are hyper-connected to the global financial market. The global financial market is connected to the insurance company. The banks are connected to each other and to the underlying collateral that's issued by other banks or generated or and, 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 and proven to be in a certain state by other banks. And you kind of have this bust cycle that happens all at once. And that's when there's about a period of a year usually about a year, you know, anywhere from six to 18 months where people become hypersensitive, right? They become hypersensitive to risk. They become hypersensitive to counterparty risk. They have become hypersensitive to transparency. They become hyper, like during the, after the 2008 financial crisis, everybody was asking everybody, 
what is the underlying assets value? Can you prove this? Can you prove to me the value? What's the asset? Where's the, can you show me the piece of paper? Who, who is, who's the mortgage hold? Like, and, and that, that led to a new, new set of standards, right? But the, the fast case basically evolves in a way where I think that, it, and historically we are in, in line for a bust cycle. We were actually a little bit delayed for a bust cycle. And when bust cycles happen, solvency, counterparty risk, the, the contractual guarantees you get from centralized systems, they begin to fail. And when they fail, people look for alternatives. And I'll give you one guess what the alternative is that everyone's going to turn to. The alternative is a tamper-proof, highly transparent, counterparty risk guaranteed system that nobody can game and everybody can know that their insurance company is solvent, their bank is solvent, their relationship with some asset they own is actually under their own control and not someone else's control. Um, and I think that this time around with that bust cycle, the blockchain industry and its capabilities to solve those problems is finally in a place where those problems can get solved. And, and, and I think that that fast case for adoption, you could essentially see people arriving at a place where I mean, I wouldn't say overnight, but in the course of one or two years, if, if, if a bunch of things start blowing up around people and the only way they have to manage risk is prove it to me and the best prove it to me capability is a blockchain, then I promise you that everybody's going to want to prove it to each other that their assets and their contractual relationship is not going to be in a state where it could fail the way, you know, those three other things over there failed and those five other things over there failed. And that's just a very logical foundational kind of way for how people manage risk. Yeah, I can see that happening. I, th I think like, you know, it is weird that we haven't had a financial bust since 2008, <laughs> despite everything, right? Despite like uh, the massive downturn in like the real economy in the U.S., this stuff usually happens in eight to twelve year cycles. That's that's historically how these how these things usually go. Yeah, this has been kind of crazy, um, and I do agree with you that I think the tech, in terms of usability and actual product development, has made tremendous strides in the in the last two years. So yeah, the, the, that is like I think a pretty good argument for for growth, like rapid growth. Right. I think, um, I think so. I, I think the infrastructure now is in a place where if, if users wanted to know that their assets were locked up in a blockchain because they had an experience or they saw somebody have an experience such that something became insolvent and, you know, their friend or even them, you know, didn't have access to those assets anymore or, or those assets got devalued somehow. Um, I think that type of risk and the ability for blockchains to solve that risk for people is going to be something that leads not only crypto startups, but the largest global web companies to, to seek to give that guarantee. And, and then, the, and, and then there's, it's, it's going to be kind of like, do you, do you provide me this guarantee or you don't? And if you don't, uh, if, if the degree to which you provide or don't provide this guarantee is the degree to which you, you lose business or gain business, and the people that go into quarterly or links call calls and say, we launched our blockchain guarantee for X, Y, and Z part of our business. And we're able to maintain our, our dominance in the, in a market. And we're able to actually grow because the other people don't have these guarantees. Um, pe people are going to want to do that pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. Um, like I, I've, I've kind of recently started thinking of this space as not so much like, layer one, layer two, all the stuff is kind of implementation details. It's, I think uh, fundamentally, a lot of it is just empowering people with cryptography. Like 
getting them to sign stuff and then be able to verify that somebody else signed it. <laughs> like even at the core base layer, um, you know, when I was at Qualcomm like a few years ago, this was really hard. They could only sign a piece of code once every six months after like a huge ceremony. Um, Binance signs a million things per day. Like you guys generate a big pile of signatures for every, you know, Oracle feed, right? These are like things that are simple to us, simple to crypto people, but extremely complicated to anyone outside of it. Yeah, I think that's right, right? Cryptographic primitives. And and I, th I think the goal of, of, of platforms like ours is, is, is to make that usable for for the larger world, right? Yeah. And and to abstract away the complexity of dealing with that. And once we do that, it's such a superior way of interacting with transactions, interacting with contracts, interacting with guarantees that people give each other and enterprises give their users that I, I still haven't gotten an answer from anybody in the biggest enterprises. Like if we could allow you to do X, Y, and Z, with this additional level of built-in security and reliability and optional transparency to counterparties such that they could just trust that something happened a certain way. After building smart contracts for seven years, I have yet to encounter somebody that says, no, <laughs> I don't want more reliability. I don't want more security. I don't want transparency that's plug and play for my counterparty. And, 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 and lowers the, the barrier for them to do business with me because they, they can trust that our transactions will work a certain way. No, nobody, once they understand what the value proposition is, has said to me, no, no, no. I, I'd like a less reliable, less secure system that takes me longer to get my counterparties to trust me with. So to, to me, it's just one of these things where um, I, I really don't know how the world isn't gonna work this way I'm, I'm hard pressed for somebody to explain to me how it's not going to work this way in, in, in a certain number of years. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I don't have that explanation from anybody. And so that tells me that, you know, by proving, proving this through kind of a process of elimination, that that's, that's where everything is going. Yeah, I agree with you. It's awesome that you have that conviction that this is like, you're just willing to, to keep building until the world catches up to you. Um, that that's like I think a, a really good sign of an entrepreneur. I think it's I think it's important. It's yeah, it's 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 a good way to go about this. I think it's um, yeah. I mean, we talked about. It. I think I think it's something that's gonna that's gonna help anybody do what they need to do over the timeline that it's gonna take for them to get to an outcome. And people need to be comfortable with that. And if if they're not comfortable with that, they're basically hoping that something can work out for, for what they're building in a timeline that, you know, might not be realistic, but uh, I, I'm very lucky, right? I'm, I'm very lucky to have the resources and to have an amazing community of people and an amazing team. And, you know, like you and me are both, I think, very lucky to be in a position where we, we can build infrastructure and we, we, we have the luxury to enable all these people and the resources to do that for long enough such that the world evolves in this way. And, and realistically, I think that's, that's the story of a lot of, a lot of successful open source projects and technology products, technologically based products. Um, I think this is somehow the counterintuitive thing that a lot of people don't realize. They, they go into doing some of this stuff and they think like, oh yeah, you know, what month one I launch, month two I get become successful. Um, if, if that's the approach a person has to this, I, I don't think that's an approach. I think that's an approach for, for negative surprises. I, I think the better approach is, do I care about this being successful? Am I willing to devote X amount of years to it? And do I have conviction that, that this, is gonna, this is gonna happen after you know, X or Y amount of years? And so if you have that conviction and you can find the right focus around that conviction, then, uh, then you're in a very, um, you're in a very good place to actually work through all the things you want to work through or you need to work through to, to get somewhere. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, so, I mean, we're kind of uh, getting close to the end of the hour. Um, I like part of the reason uh, of you joining this, I kind of wanted to briefly chat about the integration with Chainlink and Solana. 
um, which I'm super excited about because, you know, what I have conviction on is that, you know, no one's going to say no to a faster, cheaper version of a smart contracts platform, uh, especially one that's used for trading and price discovery. So um, having a reliable price feed of all the world's information, I think that that's awesome, right? That, that allows you to kind of start building applications that are, um, you know, that are kind of like, it's almost like a, a power move shortcut, right? Like I can now trade anything as long as I have an Oracle for it. Right. And like, to me that that's kind of a, I think just a, like a perfect thing to start building product. And then if you want to catch up, like, you know, having an Oracle for a price feed for like a, you know, an equities or stock, it's all regulated and you can trade against just the price feed, but you can also then that's like step one to build the product. And step two is like start trading that plus the actual stocks, right. And do settlement and all this, all this other stuff that you talked about. Like no one's going to say no to, to like having that faster and cheaper and more accessible. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty uh, excited about the possibilities working with you guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited as well. I, I think what I see is that as, as blockchains become more scalable and, and faster in their speeds, it actually allows us to put more and more data on there, both at higher frequency and, and at, at, at a closer picture to the accuracy of the real world, yeah. right, basically. And so between lower fee dynamics, higher scalability, faster speeds, all of those positive dynamics basically create a more data-rich environment where you, you suddenly have more data that's more accurate for a wider array of kind of markets and therefore a wider array of possible markets to get built into financial products, as well as more accurate data because it's getting put on chain more, more often. And, and that's something that our system is built to take advantage of, right? So we have more advanced version of our system coming out sometime soon in a, that basically does a lot of off-chain aggregation, uh, does things with signatures that aggregates them off-chain in a very scalable, productive way. And I think that the scalability gains from that and the speed gains from that, as well as the scalability and speed gains from systems like Solana, where you have more capacity to put data and faster speeds at which to put data, ena enables a more data-rich environment, right? And and the more data-rich, in, in our experience, the more data-rich an environment, the more people can build, right? So we notice that as we put more data onto various chains, we see people building around that data. And so if we're able to put better data, more of it, more accurate data, people get to build more and more and more. And so that um, that's a very virtuous dynamic because it, the, go I ahead. mean, that is like, I think the superpower that this, like infrastructure creates like imagine trying to do this without <laughs> blockchain and oracles you'd have to literally like do what like insurance companies do go to the it company and try to get them to like get you the data and build all the stuff and like or you know it, it's like a absurd amount of work and like a small team can just take these two pieces together and build like an insurance product for i don't know Airbnb rentals or right. whatever, right? Like, yeah, it's just like, yeah, it, it, it's awesome. Yeah, that's that, that's where I think we we want our, our entire industry to go is that you want a team of two to 10 people, which is run by, you know, vertically focused experts in derivatives or insurance or, or some other set of financial products to basically say, hey, just like in the web world, I can click together a few building blocks and efficiently build a secure, scalable system now, in the blockchain world, I can click together a few building blocks, build a secure and efficient system, but that system is better than the web world system because it has hyper-reliability, hyper-transparency, and all these guarantees that users want, right? And if, if, you, if you and me and, and, and other people building blockchains and oracles can enable that, I think that can unlock an entirely new world of usefulness. Yes and an entirely new dynamic between people who build in this world and and therefore what they build for users. And, and this dynamic is the dynamic that'll come to redefine our industry for users, which will redefine it from let's make tokens to I have a choice between building a web application and that being less reliable 
Or, you know, I could build one of these DAP smart contracts and I can do that almost as easily, but I get all these great benefits from doing that. I think I'm actually going to build it in that format because that's the better format in which to build applications for my users. Yeah, yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I think like we're we're in a way like, I don't know, maybe a, a both econ- economic boom or an economic bust could really kickstart this because like, you know, if, <laughs> there's like a big pile of companies that are called FinTech in Silicon Valley that are just trying to put APIs on top of like old banking software. <laughs> and <laughs> if there is like some catalyst, I think anything that is actually using blockchain can deliver these services much faster and cheaper to a much larger group of people with a much smaller team. Um, and it's just like, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about like just the near, the near term possibilities for all this stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I experienced this early on when we would build these decentralized applications ourselves, right? We were able to build a secure messaging system without having to to build a ton of security about how message data was transmitted. We were able to build a decentralized trading kind of environment or interface without having to build that infrastructure. We were able to build smart contracts that gave unparalleled guarantees to users with by, by using infrastructure other people built. And I think it's very powerful. I, th- I think it's more powerful than, than people think. And I, I think it actually follows the historic pattern of how infrastructure redefines how people build things. And that redefinition of how people build things then redefines how people consume things. And, and that's what everybody's looking for. But, but they need to understand that that's, that's a, the pattern isn't people just start consuming things all of a sudden in a different way, right? Like there's a few prologues to that, just like with the internet, right? You, you, you don't have e-commerce until you have HTTPS and credit card numbers encrypted for people to buy things on the internet. And once you do have HTTPS, you can encrypt credit card numbers and you can have e-commerce. And so those are the types of innovations that our, our industry is having now with help of our team and your team and other, other great blockchain and Oracle teams. And I think that we're, we're, we're right about at a tipping point where that composability and usability and, and abstraction away of security while allowing developers to still build useful things is, is finally getting to the point where it's not about let's generate a token and that's what I can do here. It's about if I have a choice between building a web application and a smart contract powered application, um, I'm going to build my interface in web world, but I'm going to make my backend a smart contract backend. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, so uh, super cool for you to, to join us and, and talk to us about Chainlink and kind of like, especially your story of how you started companies and kind of like how you, how you ended up where you're at. Um, I hope if folks are listening that they get some inspiration to go to go at it uh, and do their own thing. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah. My, my pleasure, Anatoly. Always, always good chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.